Heavenly Father, um, for most of us, that uh, narrative is, is basically familiar. And uh, yet, Lord, uh, we ask that you would give us fresh eyes to see, to understand, to see why, ancient though it is, it is deeply relevant for us today. Give us what we need, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to to inwardly digest these things and so to be shaped and changed, renewed and commissioned, Lord, for the life you've called us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is life for? Uh, probably one of the most fundamental questions that you could imagine. And actually, every description of the world, every ideology, every economic system, uh, uh, every political uh, set of views is, is based, is built upon a fundamental understanding of what human beings are all about on an anthropology an understanding of what it means to be human. Every single ideology at root is an anthropology. What are human beings all about? For some, for instance, both um, uh, capitalists and Marxists of uh, a previous era, um, you've got um, Adam Smith, the father of uh, modern economics, and Karl Marx there, um, they believed fundamentally that, that human beings needed to be understood as a unit of production and consumption. But uh, in fact, that dehumanized people. And it led to, on the side of Marxism, vast collective farms, vast seas of, uh, of, of people, um, all treated without individual human dignity and indeed sent off to the gulags if they um, uh, dissented. And on capitalism, some got rich, but many others who were less productive were marginalized and became poor. It was a fruit of that understanding of humanity. Uh, of course, um, uh, Sigmund Freud also had something to say about that. Human beings are fundamentally... Uh, to live for their desires, said Freud. Um, we are motivated and animated by such things. Uh, his nephew, Edward Bernays, took that uh, understanding of humans as just engines of desire and founded public relations, um, uh, modern public relations and advertising. He managed to manipulate the whole of the Western world, for instance, to smoke more cigarettes, which the American tobacco company was very happy about. Human beings were dehumanized. They were just people, units of desire to be manipulated to the benefit of others. More recently, of course, we've got um, the idea of a selfish gene, the idea that internally we are simply driven by our genetics to, uh, uh, to produce as many offspring as we possibly can. 
that idea in some ways came from Darwin and it was gleefully quoted by Hitler. Because if we are just those who are fighting tooth and nail for advantage over the next person, there is no restraint. There is just the vict victory of some species and races and the defeat of others. Perhaps um, uh, most recently uh, that has morphed into an idea of being uh, fundamentally needing to be radically free to realize in our bodies and in our lives who we internally and psychologically believe ourselves to be. That is our purpose. If our body needs to be changed to fit our internal sense of who we are, then so be it. Others need to be suppressed, marginalized, opposed. If they stop this holy calling that we have to realize within our own lives what we believe ourselves to be in our minds. And the uh, pile of bodies behind that particular bus is already growing and will only serve to grow more. Kira Bell, for instance, you may know about who's suing the Tavistock Clinic for uh, giving her puberty blockers when she was a young woman. Feminists and other gender-critical um, uh, people find themselves at odds and attacked by... Um, those who are looking for a much more radical freedom that denies gender itself. And so on it goes. The fruits are not good. And I want to suggest to you that actually the Bible of all things, and indeed the oldest part of the Bible of all places, presents a radical, beautiful, fruitful, satisfying, life-giving picture of what we are for, what it means to be human. The Bible's anthropology, the Bible's description of what it means to be human can shape us for immense good. That's what I want us to dig into, and indeed we're going to come back to some of these themes on, on subsequent weeks. So we're really just starting to look at uh, uh, what these early chapters of Genesis say. Last week we saw what they say about creation, and the week before, what they, what they say about creation, God and creation in general. This week, what it, what it means to be human. And... Um, uh, the fundamental language that the Bible in general uses is that we are made in the image of God. That was uh, the, the language of Genesis chapter 1 that we looked at briefly. Verse um, uh, 27 God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. 
that moves, moves on the ground. What does this idea of being in the image of God mean? Some people have, have wanted to root the idea of the image of God in our capabilities, in the things that we can do. It was very popular, for instance, to say that our ability to reason puts us as, as unique creatures in the image of God. Some people have suggested the opposing thumb. Some people have suggested our ability to laugh, even. There are many, many uh, different capabilities that have been uh, di discussed. But it doesn't seem to be particularly central in the, in the biblical description. More central biblically is the idea not of our capabilities so much as our role, our position on the earth. Did you notice? Let them rule over the fish of the sea, etc. It seems to be descriptive, in fact, of what, what the image of God is all about. Ancient uh, Near Eastern societies, when there was a great kingdom that grew up, the, the, the king at the center would have difficulty asserting his dominance and his rule on the farthest uh, uh, parts of his kingdom. And so he would set up an image of himself by which and through which he signified his rule on that distant part of his kingdom. And so it is suggested that, he, that, that in, a, in an analogous way, God set up human beings as an image of himself on the earth. No one may see God. But here on the earth is the image of God ruling on his behalf. Vice regents, if you will. A third understanding of the image of God relies not is not so much about capabilities or centrally role but in our relational character it's very interesting that God breaks into the plural for no apparent reason in verse 26 let us make mankind in our image and it's also interesting that, that when he creates them, it's here that he specifically introduces the idea of male and female. He created them. And so the suggestion is that there's something about the relational character of human beings and our gendered character that images God. Genesis 1 and 2, we barely see it, but by the time we get to the New Testament, we realize that somehow God is triune, God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at the heart of the one God, insists the Bible, there is relationship. There is relational engagement. And maybe this uh, statement in Genesis chapter 1 is just a first hint that the relationality of human beings, male and female, is designed to image the relationality of the Godhead himself. I'm not sure we need to divide up between those, those, those three. It is probable that all three have, have uh, some merit to them. Central is this role to rule over the world on God's behalf. 
But that means that human beings need to be endowed with certain capabilities in order to be the dominant species in the plan of God. And it may well be that the relationality, the the act of, of, of working together in God's creation, male and female, is a particular thing that God wanted to place in human beings so that we image him two things though from this fundamental description that i want to want to pick up for you before we move on one is that human beings are unique in the animal kingdom amongst living things we are not the same as animals there are many ways in which we are no more than animals everything has the breath of life says the Bible. But we have a unique responsibility on the earth. Genesis 1 and when we get to Genesis 2, it will make it very clear. A unique responsibility on the earth. That actually is universally agreed and frankly obvious in today's world. David Attenborough is not sitting down and negotiating with chimpanzees about how we can save the planet. He is not getting into negotiations with dolphins about removing plastics from the oceans. Nobody denies that it is human beings who have made a mess of this world and human beings who need to sort it out. And the Bible right from the beginning suggests exactly that. We are living creatures. We do have the breath of life. We are uniquely set aside and responsible for looking after God's world. But the other thing that uh, is very important in this picture is that all human beings are equal. Particularly, as the text highlights, male and female are equal, made in the image of God. Wherever we may go over the next few weeks, and we're going to be looking at the, um, uh, the, the relational role between men and women in, I think it's two weeks' time. Wherever we may go with that in the rest of the Bible, this is the foundational truth. We are equal. We are precious. Each human being is uniquely precious, not a unit of production and consumption, not just a, not, not just a vehicle for, for a selfish genes, not just a set of blind desires, but a, but a unique creature, divine almost, made in the image of God. That means that all, all human beings must be treated with equal dignity. An economic system that leaves some ignored or denigrated or marginalized because they are not good, efficient producers. Or they just lost out in the, in the race to the top of, the, uh, of, of, of those who accumulate capital is not Christian. Because every single human being is uniquely 
precious. A view of human beings as just another animal who, whose preciousness is defined upon their capability. And therefore, as the, uh, the, the, the ethicist uh, Peter Singer used to say, we may have more responsibility to the Labrador sleeping at the hearth of our fire than to a, to a severely disabled child is wrong. We have responsibilities towards animals, including Labradors like ours. But there is something unique about human beings, even if they are disabled. And I'm very glad to say that the disabled community in, in the UK is slowly, steadily waking up to that. Because the Bible's been talking about it for thousands of years. No, human beings are unique in the animal kingdom. We are equal. But what are we for? What, um, what is our role? Genesis 2 then expands on this idea of being in the image of God, explaining that we are created to rule over the world on behalf of God, so to speak. Genesis 2 verse 2, By the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then when it says a couple of times later on that God put the man in the garden, um, for instance in verse 8, um, you, can, you can read it actually, God rested the man in the garden. In one sense, he's, he's sort of settled there, sharing in God's rest, but then he is put there to work it. He took the man, verse 15, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God stops from his work and he makes his image, puts his image there to do his work, to take care of creation. It is the fundamental image that the Bible has of our role in this world. And Genesis 2 makes it very plain that has various dimensions. The first one, and, and possibly the most wonderful and surprising one, is that it is to enjoy it. God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God intentionally makes things visually beautiful. Did you see that? Pleasing to the eye. This is not a utilitarian universe. This is a beautiful universe with beautiful trees that he designs to be beautiful. He intentionally makes food enjoyable it was good for food he could have designed us so that we could just have a tablet or some bland liquid that with all the nutritional value in it that we uh, we could consume and that would be that but he didn't do that he made all the variety of foods that there is on the earth as a rich uh, um, um, witness to the rich varied goodness of God himself. 
He created beauty. He created enjoyable food. He intentionally made built variety into his creation. All kinds of trees. You could say, in the beginning, there was fun. God provided wonderful, good things to enjoy. And he provided life and refreshment. That... that um, um, enigmatic but wonderful picture of the a river, verse 10, watering the garden, flowed east from Eden, it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon, it winds through the land of Havilah, where the gold is good. The name of the second is Gihon, it winds through the land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris, it runs from the east side of Asher. The fourth is the Euphrates. Now the Tigris and the Euphrates, we know, but the other two, we don't, and nobody has successfully been able to, to identify them. It may signify some Something about it's something intentional about this picture that it that it has it has figurative dimensions to it. Most Christians uh, uh, agree you're not going to go and go, you're not going to be able to send out a a, a, a sort of um, a adventure party to go and find where the Garden of Eden is. Indeed, we are told that. Human beings are banished from it forever in Genesis chapter 3, and there are angels protecting, uh, protecting it. And there it seems to be not, not quite just, you know, something that will appear on Google Earth. So here, perhaps, half deeply rooted in the geography that they know and half mysterious, suggests something of the nature of this narrative. But the most important thing is... The, the wonderful, life-giving freshness of this flowing water that waters the Garden of Eden. A number of years ago, Judy and I went to um, uh, visit the Alhambra in Granada in, uh, um, in Spain. It was built by the Moors, and uh, uh, large parts of it were, were, were based on a, a, a sort of um, attempt to represent the Garden of Eden. It is... It is full of water, actually, in the buildings, but then in the gardens as well. There's a, there's a wonderful little set of steps that I remember vividly. Um, as you walk up the steps, you, you realize that, uh, that the, the handrails of the steps have, um, are carved out so that water that has been diverted from just naturally flowing down the mountain flows down the handrails. And in this hot, dry... Uh, place you walk up there and your hands are just refreshed we we perhaps don't get the overtones of what it means to have a river running past us um, because we don't live in dry middle eastern places it means life in that in fact flowing water in the bible is called living water. The Garden of Eden is a place of abundant life. Life just flowing through it. So wonderful is this place. Here we are then. First picture part, part of this picture. What is it? What do we live for? Well, in part, 
God says, you live to enjoy this wonderful place that God has placed you in called the world. And we live, he says, to, to bring some order to it. Um, when the world is created in Genesis 2, it is not the finished item. God plants, we are told, a garden in the east. But then more widely, there is still wilderness. There is a task for the man and the woman when they are placed in the garden to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, as it says in chapter 1. In other words, there is... There is um, uh, uh, a job of making the whole world into the garden of God. The Bible doesn't believe in naturalism. The idea that what we should do is just leave everything alone and that will be okay. You know, it used to be articulated, God had wanted us to fly, he'd have given us wings. That's naturalism. Ecologists don't believe in naturalism, though they don't always, they're not always aware of it. Because naturalism, that just leaves every creature to do its thing, would of course leave human beings to go out and send their whaling ships out into the oceans until there were no whales left. But actually, everyone who examines this world carefully and thinks about it believes that actually human beings do have a responsibility to manage the world. They have a responsibility to have COP26 conferences. A responsibility to designate Antarctica as a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. And the many other good things that we have done collectively in this world because we need to manage it. We have made a mess of it. But it doesn't remove our responsibility to look after it, to tend it and care for it and to bring some order to it. We'll see, we'll do the environment in a little while. We're not, we're not to plunder it mindlessly. We are to care for it. This world is to enjoy. This world is, is, is for us to, to, to bring order to. This, this world is for us to be creative within. I, I just love chapter 2, verse 12. Put in brackets. Um, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. I love it because what it's saying is that out there in the world, there are, there are all kinds of resources that the man and the woman haven't found yet. They're up in the hills. It's up in the hills. It's buried. Or it's um, aromatic resin probably dripping from the odd tamarisk tree or whatever it is. It's there, ready to be found and ready to be used. God put on this world the raw materials for making the most beautiful things, gold. God put in this world the raw material. God endorses fragrances, do you notice? Aromatic, aromatic onyx. Chanel and Fabergé. At least in part are good things. Because God wants us to use those raw materials to create beauty. 
You know, Christians who've studied their Bibles carefully have always believed that. They have been um, dogged over the years by propagandists who have tried to deny that. The Puritans, in particular, have come in for, uh, for, for quite a beating. Um, now, the Puritans hated gaudiness. The Puritans hated things that, that uh, led people to be um, uh, lascivious and lustful and promiscuous and so on. They, they didn't like all things that the world called uh, beauty by any means. They were famously suspicious of Christmas. Not because it was fun, but because it was drunken and debauched in their day. They actually loved beauty, rejoiced in beauty, described nature as God's second book, the beauty of it to excite people's uh, wonder and delight. You know all those pictures, I don't know whether you do, but the uh, Puritans are generally um, uh, in pictures portrayed wearing black. The reason is because black was cool. Black was smart. We didn't invent the little black number just a few decades ago, you know. It was seen to be the smartest thing that you could, you could wear. And so they dressed up smart for their portraits. They were lampooned by, for instance, genuine um, haters of, of uh, uh, or people of suspicious of frivolity for the fact that they dressed so um, brightly. George Fox, the, 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 the um, uh, uh, Christian, was deeply suspicious of the Puritans because of their love of beauty. John Owen, a great Puritan leader, when he was dean of Christchurch, just, uh, just over the way from here, was lampooned. They, they said for his flamboyant dressing, for they used to wear wigs, for, for, for his wig, which was powdered with um, a kind of sort of scented talc uh, stuff. And they said he used to leave a trail of this scented talc all, all the way along St. Aldate's when he walked. Do not think that Christians who studied their Bibles carefully have been suspicious of beauty and good things. They have not. They have been deeply aware that it can be corrupted into damaging things. But it is much more the propagandists who painted them as dark, fun-hating, joy-killing people. They were anything but... Human beings were made to enjoy the world, to bring order to the world, to be creative in the world, to live with freedom and restraint simultaneously. The Lord God commanded the man, uh, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Notice, first of all, the enormous freedom of God's command there. Eat from 
any tree. You have massive, massive freedom in this world, he says. You were created for freedom. You know, the, the, the first supper, what are they going to eat? Are apples the endorsed thing? Are peaches the endorsed thing? Are bananas the endorsed thing to eat, eat, eat for dessert? No, fruit salad is. That's the point. Anything. Now the Lord had formed, verse 19, out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Do you see the enormous freedom in that? God doesn't name the animals. He says, look, here you are, you give them names. There's, a, there's an antelope in, um, uh, in Africa called Nyala. Um, it, it got that name because um, uh, some Westerner was, um, uh, was uh, wandering around Africa sort of naming things. And he asked the local people what, when they brought home an antelope that they'd killed, uh, what's that? And they said, Nyala. So he noted down, okay, it's Nyala. Nyala means meat. <laughs> so poor, poor Nyala has um, forever held that name but human beings have the freedom to name things and God simply watched looked on it is for freedom that Christ has set us free Paul proclaims in Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament don't embrace a slavery that is not merited by the Bible. But there is, there is restraint. You're free from it to eat any tree, including the tree of life, incidentally, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There may be something figurative about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It may be simply something that stands for, of course, any disobedience of God, any breaking of the boundaries that God has set, involves us coming to know good and evil not all knowledge is good i'm very happy not knowing what poison tastes like and i don't intend to find out so just this little thing in my creation says the says the story just this little thing you've got massive freedom just this little thing don't do that it will not do you any good you will certainly die. Next week we'll find out what happens. Here then is the picture. God created us to enjoy his creation, to order his creation, to be creative in his creation, to be free in his creation with just some sensible restraint. And then lastly, and very, very importantly, we need to see he made us to do that relationally. The first time something is described in the Bible as not good, it's in verse 18. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Animals simply don't cut it uh, as suitable helpers. 
And so, verse 21, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. The Lord made the woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The old rabbis used to say God didn't make her from his head so that she wouldn't uh, uh, rule over him, but he didn't make her from his feet so that he wouldn't crush so so that he couldn't crush her. He took her from his side so that they would be equal companions. More about that in coming weeks, but first of all I just want you to see a beautiful complementarity in the between the man and the woman. The man said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of a man. Now, it is important with the language there, she is not named. All the animals were named. Naming, naming signifies some kind of authority over something else. And indeed, a def- defining that thing, like Nyala, according to what it will do for us. And the language carefully avoids saying that she is named. She is not. She will be after the fall. Adam named her Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, we will learn. I.e. she's got a name now because she's according to what she'll do for him. But that is their fallen state. Here he just simply exclaims. And uh, the, the nature of the exclamation is really, really important. Uh, the, the, um, I have to do a bit of Hebrew with you. The word for a man is ish. And what he says is she, she, she's ishah. And ach on the end of a word means to or from. In other words, she's, a, a, she's wonderfully complimentary to me. She's not naming. This is, wow. This, this, is, a, this is a complimentary human being who is to, from, with me. She is different. They're not just both ish. But she is not anything like those animals that he named. So gender is a real thing. Complementarity is a real thing. And the Bible does not conflate genders. But neither does it set up gender as in any sense a sort of differential of power. The ruling of the man over the woman appears in Genesis 3 as part of the curse. More on that in a couple of weeks. But let's just linger in Genesis 2 for now. Let's just realize, for instance, that our calling as Christians 
with now centuries and millennia of fallen history behind us and of, of difficult history between men and women, which is deeply to be regretted and, as uh, if necessary, repented of. Our calling, though, is not to continue that gender warfare, but to learn gender cooperation. To learn to equally honour one another as different and yet equal. And our calling is to work together in this world because without that cooperation we cannot fulfill the mandate of God. It is certainly talking about marriage. The last verse makes that uh, very clear. But it is not exclusive to marriage. The human calling, the holy calling that we have, is a calling to cooperate, men and women, in the great task of living in this world. And as believers, as Christians, in the great task of bearing witness to Jesus one last thing as we finish that I jumped over but we now need to look at in all of that calling in the world there is a fundamental calling to know God Verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now there's nothing unique about having the breath of life. Animals have that. There's nothing unique about being a living being. Animals have that. What is unique, and there's nothing unique actually about being formed from the ground. The verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us that was of animals. What is unique here is God breathing into his nostrils. Michelangelo's picture on the roof, on the ceiling of the uh, Sistine Chapel incorporates a potentially dangerous heresy because it portrays God as if from the very distant place with the farthest reach of the tip of his finger just managing to reach out to an Adam who in turn is reaching out to him and Genesis 2 says that is not what happened Genesis 2 portrays God making the man and forming him and, and bringing him to himself face to face, that close, and then breathing into his nostrils. The only time human beings get that close is in sex and marriage, by and large. It is portrayal of the most extraordinary intimacy that God created human beings 
with and for. When uh, Jesus had risen from the dead, died on the cross and risen from the dead, he met his disciples and John tells us in John chapter 20, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. The rest of the New Testament makes it plain that the Holy Spirit, the central work of the Holy Spirit, is he brings us back into that relationship. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We're children of God. God pours out his love into our hearts by his Spirit. If you're a believer here, God has done a decisive work to bring you back into that relationship. If you're not a believer here, then so far you've missed out on the most basic, the most fundamental, the most satisfying, the most extraordinary, the most wonderful thing about being a human being. God wants to breathe his life into us. Now I say to you, I do not think there is any other description of what we are for, what life is about, that comes near being as persuasive and clear about our status as human beings and being as glorious and wonderful in describing our privilege. If you're not a Christian, I hope your heart is longing with every ounce of energy and desire that it has for this. If you are a Christian here, I hope you are sitting here thinking, I am the most privileged creature in the universe. Because I know the living God. Let's pray. It is a holy calling, Lord. It is a glorious privilege. And we bow before you and we simply say, we are amazed. We are full of wonder. We cannot thank you enough. Lord, please. Bring us more and more into that face-to-face -face relationship, we pray. And help us to be those 
who live out our holy calling in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.